0: I'm here today with Jacob Berry in the basement of the Hong Kong Academy of Performing Arts, where, in a few hours, uh, the Hong Kong rendition of Madame Whitesnake, uh, composed by Joe Long, um, written by Cerise Lynn Jacobs, uh, and designed and directed by yours truly, um, will will happen at 7.30 this evening. And we're here... Uh, because this project has been produced by Beth Morrison Productions and Jekka Berry and team and um, we're here to talk about producing innovation through the lens of a highly accomplished, extremely well regarded um, and dare I say visionary producer and to hear her view on all things related to producing innovation, how that happens, how that's happened in her life and, and what does that mean for you and the conversation that we've been, we've been developing throughout this podcast. So with that, Jacob Berry. How do you produce innovation? How do you produce anything? It's always been about reinventing a form.
1: I think we're all in this room together because we believe in lifelong learning.
0: It's all about persistence. If you give up, that's the end of the game. You have no chance. I wanted to go make my own mistakes in pursuit of, I didn't even know one at the time. Show up. Show up when you fail. Show up when you fail miserably. Show up when you don't want to show up. There's an audacity that I think is required to to be a creator.
1: Just start. Like, don't wait for permission.
0: Sit down at the table with some of the great creators. Some of the people who have cut new ground and found a new path and done things that are like improbable and Ludicrous and wonderful and for which we should all be grateful in the worlds of art and theater and music and technology and innovation.
1: This is producing Innovation. you're
0: listening to producing innovation. Let's start off, Jekka, with what's your what's your story? How did you get here? I mean, if this if this podcast is about producing innovation, um, What's your journey to this moment? What, what is your, how does that resonate, that idea of producing innovation, both producing, the producing part, and also the innovation part, resonate with you? Um, in essence, why are we sitting here today?
1: Sure. So um, it's interesting. Like My journey to becoming a producer and to where I am feels like this incredibly random and winding path, um, and yet when I tell people about it, I also always say that my current role and the work I do um, uses skills that I have gained from every single sort of twist in the path. So um, I started my life as um, a flute player. Um, I started playing when I was um, nine years old and was pretty obsessively um, into uh, performance. Um, I have undergraduate and graduate degrees in flute performance. Um, And when I was about 15 years old, I um, fell in love with new music. And I was really lucky to have some teachers that um, were also composers and introduced me to um, just the incredible um, array of of, um, compositional works for flute by uh, some amazing composers. And at the same time, I sort of ended up working with young composers a lot. And the idea of sitting in a room with somebody and being able to tell them what works and what doesn't. Um, I loved being part of that creative process. Um, So I studied new music as much as I possibly could through my undergraduate degree, which was from the Royal Northern College of Music in England. Um, And then between my undergrad and grad um, school degrees, I went and I sort of spent a bunch of my 20s going and having really interesting experiences. So I lived in Paris twice. Um, The first time I worked with... um, A number of arts collectives in We Lived in a Squat, um, uh, an incredibly beautiful one, um, and uh, had had that kind of experience where we were going and creating things and performing around Paris and then going and taking the shows to Amsterdam. Um, I ended up producing, uh, not really knowing what producing was, but producing um, a 24-hour theater um, uh, extravaganza where we had um, playwrights come in and it was totally bilingual so there were two French playwrights, two um, American playwrights come in and write one act um, that we then produced within 24 hours um, and then I ended up uh, going off to grad school I went to NYU um, back into performance and into flute performance um, I also had a brief period of my life where I was doing a lot of finance Um, I sort of fell into, I learned finance um, through working for a couple different um, interesting people and really found it, um, I mean, we'll talk about this later, but I am somebody who is incredibly logical. And so having a right answer, right, when you're looking at numbers, having a right answer, really, like, I love that. and so I worked in finance for a bit. Um, and then I sort of, after grad school, I ended up in some jobs that I didn't love but were interesting. Uh, I was a business manager for some very high net worth people and um, and then founded an orchestra <laughs> um, with a couple people that I was friends with. Um, we lasted about a year and a half. Uh, we played at Alice Tully um, and I was both the flute player and the orchestra, um, but I was also ended up on the board and I ended up running it and um, <laughs> building budgets and managing it. And that was the moment when I really realized that I was having so much more fun on the producing side and making the thing happen than I was on the performance side. And, um, and I also had always just been somebody who didn't, I, I loved being on stage performing, I hated everything else about it. I hated having to sort of sell myself. I hated having to um, audition. I found them very stressful. So um, I, it was sort of like an epiphany of like, oh, I like making the thing happen. And so I went back to NYU and I went and took some classes in arts administration. Um, and uh, for one of my classes, I was it was a marketing in the arts class. And we had to um, choose an event that was going to happen in... New York in the near future um, and create a marketing plan for it. And um, I had just heard about a new festival that was starting called Prototype. And so I chose Prototype uh, and took it to my teacher. And I I knew about Prototype because I knew here at Art Center. I I had um, been to see shows there, I knew about the work they were doing, I thought it was really interesting. And uh, I took it to my teacher and said, I want to do prototype festival. And he said, well, one, I was asking for an event, not like 10 events. Um, But sure, if you want to do a festival, go for it. And two, do you know Beth Morrison? And I said, no, I have no idea who that is. Um, And it turned out that my teacher had gone to Yale with Beth and had followed what Beth was doing and the creation of BMP. Um, And it was at that moment that BMP was, um, that Beth was producing Dog Days. And so I read a lot about it um, and fell in love with the work that she was doing. Just thought it was so, so interesting. And, you know, my passion for working with composers, living composers, um, and, and also just thinking that the theatrical work was incredible. Um, so I was super excited. Um, and so I created this marketing plan for Prototype. Um, I read lots about what BMP was doing. And, uh, and then at the end of that class, I um, I I came across a job listing for an associate producer for Beth, and which I was absolutely not qualified for, like not even remotely. Like I had no technical theater knowledge or like anything, um, but it just seemed too serendipitous. So I applied for the job, and um, Beth's assistant at the time wrote back to me and said, "You're totally unqualified for this job." But you have this finance experience and we think we're about to get a grant for a general manager. And, um, and and would you be interested in that? And I wrote back and I was like, that's the job I want. Like, that is what I want to do. And that's what I will be good at. Um, and then uh, Beth and I met um, because it was right around the holidays and right before prototype and her schedule's crazy and my schedule was crazy. We ended up only meeting for about 15 minutes, but it was like, it was like meeting a soulmate. It really was, we finished each other's sentences and it was just like, I knew that this was somebody I was gonna be working with for a long time. So um, I ended up starting as a general manager with with BNP um, about uh, three weeks after the end of the first prototype. Um, And then since then the company has grown incredibly. Um, I was the second full-time employee and now we're nine. Um, And uh, we've been together for six years. Um, And and then sort of through my work with BMP and then also because I had spent quite a lot of time um, in and around theater, I ended up working um, outside of BMP producing some theater work Um, and that really has um, also just captured my interest and my um, avant-garde sort of creative theater. So that's... Where we are now.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. I, I, so much of that I didn't know. That's so compelling. I, I, I just think of you guys as like this super dynamic duo that like must have just been like forged from from like hot molten steel it was the, the dawn of time or something. It was really
1: crazy. Yeah. Like, it, you know, I, I think about that day and um, all the things that were going on both for her and for me. And we met on in like a coffee shop on the Upper East Side. And it really was like... There was, there was just something. Mm. And, um, and I think at that point, they hadn't even posted the job listing for a general manager. And so I was the only person that had been interviewed. And so Beth, um, uh, you know, sort of being the professional that she is, said, you know, we have to post, the, you know, you're so great. We have to post the job and I'll interview some other people and then we'll do like a second round. Um, and so that was where we left things. And I think that was maybe like December 21st or 22nd. Um, And then on January 1st, she emailed me and she was like, just kidding, can you come and work with me? (laughs) So yeah, it was, I mean, and it was like leaving a job that paid me a lot more, um, but was really like sucking my soul. And then I went and I, you know, the two of us together, I feel like we got to jump into all this amazing work that she had been working on for years, you know, mostly by herself and then just like exploding the company and growing it and... You know, and and then how it's changed both in terms of our capacity to take on work, but then also with us now, as you said, like doing a lot more international stuff in the last couple of years, um, and really seeing the the way that you know Beth has really been changing the culture around opera in the U.S. and now seeing the ripple effects of that internationally, and seeing these large festivals that actually have the capacity to produce and present this work, um, really starting to invest in it and being interested in the projects that. That we're developing and um so that that is thrilling i hear i hear and
0: everything you just said i hear through line which is which is why my intuition was was right to want to sit down with you um beyond just what i know of you but even the things that i didn't know are some of the pieces to the puzzle that i didn't know which now makes so much more sense what i hear is that even as a young musician you were drawn to innovation. You were drawn not just the contemporary, or the, the, the classical canon, but like new music and orchestral music or, 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 or the, the music composer, the flute or what have you, into new domains. And then in hearing what you were doing in Paris and an arts collective and doing way out stuff and then being drawn to Beth and other, you know, ideas and other opportunities. Like to me there's a through line of innovation. What is it if that's if that's the case? Like what is it that that excites you about someone like Beth or or new music or what is it that that and setting aside just the idea of innovation as a as a way to describe those things, but like what excites you? What are you drawn to and why? And then how does that sort of extend into BMP and the kind of work that you and Beth and your team are drawn to and and are obviously very adept at realizing and bringing into the world.
1: I think, so I had, I had I will explain it through talking about how I fell in love with new music, which was that I had this moment. um, It was, I was taking, in high school, I took AP Music Theory, and it was taught by this wonderful composer. And she played us two pieces. Um, One week, she played us, um, Steve Reich's *Different Trains*, and which is all looping and text, and um, it is the creation of this incredible, incredibly moving piece of music through a means other than an instrument, and um, and it blew my mind. And um, and then the following week, uh, she played us George Crumb's *Voice of the Whale*, um, which to this day is. Probably my all time favorite piece of music. And, um, and it was, it's for um, amplified flute, amplified cello, and prepared piano. And um, the way that George Crumb had taken recordings of um, whale song underwater and cre- recreated it through these three instruments, um, and also was using all of these flute techniques. Um, like singing and playing at the same time, and um, all of these extended techniques, again, like, blew my mind. And in both of those moments, it was, I didn't know classical music could be this. Like, it blew my mind. And I was so drawn to that, and I think that that's the through line. For me, it's those, those moments of epiphany and seeing them in, in the audience, um, that I didn't know this could be that. Right? That like, I didn't know this could be theater. I didn't know an opera could be this. Um, and I think that that's the thing that I'm most drawn to, is, is the pieces that literally transform an audience's view of what a word means to them. Um, and, and I think that that comes through innovation, that comes through the creativity of an incredible group of people coming together um, and literally transforming or pushing the boundaries. And I think that that BMP is the same and prototype is the same in that um, you know, I think that there is still such a um, a sense of tradition around the word opera. And I think being able to push on that and like mess with it, you know, so like, we say we we call everything we do opera theater and music theater because theater is such an incredibly important component of it, and it is really the marriage of music with theater, and and so being able to push the boundaries of what people think an opera is and saying well did you know that an opera could be a concept album starring Courtney Love did you know that an opera can be you know this Madam White Snake which you know has is both the marriage of of more traditional music but with an incredibly highly technological, you know, design that you've created. Um, you know, so I think it's just all of it is just really pushing these boundaries of, of redefining pe- people's expectations. You know, I love that um, I took this uh, music and the brain class in grad school that talked about why, why people um, like music that resolves. You know, and that the, the brain works in a series of expectations of knowing what's going to come next. And, um, and that one of the reasons why people have, sometimes have a hard time with new music is because the expectation is constantly being shut off. And I love that. Like, I love that. I like the idea that, that your brain is constantly being messed with and that, that the expectations you have are constantly being challenged.
0: Awesome. That is so... That it's, it, I, I've never heard it said exactly that way. Uh, I, I was immediately reminded of, um, I was a huge fan of Gertrude Stein's writing and specifically her, her, her plays. She said that she wrote plays because the plays that she heard and, and saw resolved. They, they set up expectations as you're talking about and then they would resolve and she, she felt like if I see where it's going, why do I care? Why do I need to see it resolve if I can see where it's going? And so she wrote plays and poetry and everything. With this idea of constantly like new music, defying defying those expectations, and and so that you didn't know where it was going because of where it came from, mm-hmm. and I've often applied that idea to my own work, and and you know the first opera I ever did, I was so committed to defying people's expectations, not just about once they sat in their seat and the, and the house lights went down and the curtain went up, but. Across the board, how could we defy their expectations once they came into the building? And what, did, what, what was the experience in the lobby? And then what mm-hmm. happened once they walked in the room? And how was it different than uh, traditionally? And how could we charge that? And how could just on every level? Because I feel like that's the thing that gets in people's way of enjoyment mm-hmm. is, is so often those, those expectations that don't allow them to go... Into sort of new territory. In a way, I think expectations are actually a challenge to innovation, um, because you know, what's the 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 great saying that I love so much? The road to invention is by definition uncertain and unknown and unexpected, and it can't be known. And if it is, it's probably not innovative. Um,
1: I mean, I've had the great pleasure of getting to work with the theater artist Jeff Sobel and produce his work and. Um, you know his piece, The Object Lesson, it, it literally is that. It is saying, okay, what are all of the expectations that somebody who buys a ticket to a theater are gonna have, and how do we break every single one of them, right? From the time you walk into the space and it does not look like a theater, it looks like a storage facility, and there are no seats, and then you have to find your seat, and it turns out you're gonna sit on a card- cardboard box, and um, you know, so all the way through, literally just changing the expectation of, of what it is to go and buy a ticket to, to see a show.
0: You've already spoken about it a bit, but I'd love to have you expand on, you know, in a way we think about opera, and, and I would say that most often people you talk about opera, and people think about a traditional form, a classical form, and classical music, and, you know, what's it been like in your experience as an artist, as a as a musician, but also as a producer with with Beth and BMP and Prototype, and doing all the work that you're doing around the world like what's the landscape of 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 music like internationally what's the what's the landscape of opera and music theater like internationally and how if you guys are redefining it like what's that like and and, and, and what are the obstacles to it and where does the joy lie
1: i mean I think that it's it's being redefined um Practically on a weekly basis at this point, I think that that you know the work that Beth did early on when she started BMP was so um, she was she was really sh- shunned, for lack of a better word, by the opera community, who said, "Well, you're not doing, you you know this isn't opera, this isn't you know what are you trying to do," and um, and. I think that one of the things that she was so successful at and that now BMP is so successful at is that um, we are able to, as a small company, we are able to be flexible enough to serve the creative process um, to create incredibly high quality work. And I think that that through that, you're now seeing other companies that are realizing that their audiences are very interested in that type of work. So, um, and that's in lots of different ways. I think that chamber opera has um, an incredible ability to draw audiences in because all of a sudden, instead of you know, sitting 20 rows back at the mat, you're sitting three rows back in a 250 seat black box and you are having a viscerally different reaction to the presence of singers in front of you. Um, and that that there is an emotional connection there that that i at least for me personally i find it just it it hits me emotionally in a very different way um that's not to say i don't love grand opera i love grand opera but i don't have the visceral connection emotionally that i do to chamber opera um i think there's also in new opera you are creating the stories of now and that's so important and um you know one of the one of the most important things that that Beth and I talk about and um, speak with composers and librettists about you know when we're getting pitched ideas for new work the question is why this story why now and if it doesn't have some relevance to people's lives today to the things that are happening in the world then I'm not sure it's a story that's that's worth the amount of time and resource and energy that we will have to put into it over a period of three or five years. Um, I think one of the other things is that if, if you're creating a work that feels incredibly important, then you are... Um, you know, it, it takes a while to develop, and, and sometimes the world will have shifted in that time. So, uh, you know, for instance, a piece that we just premiered um, in January, Prism... Has been in development for five years, um, and it is a story of of um, the survivor of sexual assault. And five years ago, that had a really different resonance than it does now in the wake of Me Too. Um, and there's no way we could have foreseen that, but you know, it it is it is so incredibly powerful in a different way than I think it would have been five years ago. Um, so I think that that with all of that, we're now seeing other companies around the country and then around the world who are recognizing the exact same thing um, and are interested in creating new work and interested in telling the stories, interested in finding the audiences who want to come. You know, it's it's about the changing demographic of who's going to see opera. So, you know, our audiences for our work are significantly younger than the traditional opera audiences um, of the main stage. So I think, I mean, all of the, it's, it's all of those things. It's all of the different um, uh, sort of elements that draw audiences to new opera. Um, and I, I, we do see that the companies around the country and around the world are really starting to, to pay attention to that and are starting to both be interested in our work, but also creating their own programs, you know, which can only benefit the industry as a whole. So it's, it feels like a, a huge shift you know, in the last five or seven years. Katie here. We're taking a quick break from the episode to remind you to follow us on Instagram and Facebook accounts projects, or on our website, AccountsProjects.com. It's the best way to keep up with our current work and find out more about what we're working on. Okay, back to the episode.
0: What do you look for when someone comes to pitch you? Someone comes to you with an idea... And you sit down with them and say it's someone that you don't know. Like, w- what are some of the telltale signs that make you lean in or or have a question or a concern, even? Um, like, what what? And is it is it the quality of the idea, or is it an idea that connects with themes that you're already related to, or is it, or is it is it something about the person? Um, and, and I'm sure the answer is all of the above, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, from almost like advice if if someone listening was going to you know, eventually someday come and pitch you an idea for a new production or a new creative Mm -hmm. project of some sort?
1: Um, Well, I think that for for opera work and for the work with BMP, um, it's, we always start with the music and the music has to, um, we have to feel like the composer's voice is unlike any voice we've heard before. That's really the starting point. It is, does this person write music that I've never heard? And um, do they have something distinctive to say with their music? Um, So I think for for everything for BMP, that has always been the starting point. Um, And then the interest for us is then in assembling teams and helping assemble teams where we think the different, bringing different voices into the room will elevate that voice, um, to, to something incredible. Um, I think for, for me personally, you know, um, in more theatrical work, it is, um, you know, I'm not drawn to plays. I absolutely enjoy plays, you know, um, but it's not the work that I'm interested in producing. I am interested in producing, The idea which is going to transform, and the the artist who has um, has something bigger to say than the one story, Um, and whether that's about you know the audience's expectation of what it is to sit in a theater seat, or if it's um, about some broad theme and of you know, within the world, whether it's a, a theme of injustice or, um, you know, uh, f- food shortage or refugees, you know, whatever it is, taking some broad theme and then finding a way in that I think is unexpected and that is going to connect with an audience in, an, in, an, in a very deep way. So it's really, it sort of goes back to the, I want you to blow my mind, I want you to have thought about the things to come with to me with an idea that I could never have thought of myself. I want you to blow my mind, and um, and sort of change my expectation of what something can be. And um, I think also it's really important to be able to, as an artist, speak about your work in a way that is both um, the hundred foot view and the one foot view. Um, I think that you know, in within the creative process, there are so many artists who are so. They're so in their ideas as they should be, but it's not helpful to me if you can't also express the big the big picture um, and be able to communicate that really really well. I think that's incredibly important. Um, while then like so, it's jumping back and forth between the hundred foot view and the you know in the weeds. So I think yeah, I, I think it's it all comes back to the idea that I want somebody, even with all of the new music and new theater experience that I have there's still so much potential for somebody to come into a room and transform the way I think about something. And I know if they've done that to me, then a much more traditional theater or opera audience will definitely have that experience, and that's so exciting.
0: Outside of the work that you do, opera, theater, mm-hmm. music, who were people who inspired you?
1: Um, there are so many. I've recently gotten so into... the There's a bunch of them, but different podcasts about people who have founded companies. Um, so How I Built This is a great podcast, and, um, I mean, there's a bunch of them. But I think hearing people's stories of how they got to where they are, how they created something out of nothing, how they... Um, built empires or, you know, companies that are impressive, even if I don't love the company itself, I love the creation story because all of them are different. Um, but so much of it is about, you know, the work you put in and, um, and how you create like a a culture, a work culture, um, which I think a lot about as, you know, BMP gets bigger. Um, I will say that there are certain people that I, um, look to, you know, like I'm a a huge fan of Michael Kaiser um, and the work that he did in different arts organizations. Um, I think that the way he um, learned through the process of running so many different arts organizations, learned the do's and don'ts, and then has dedicated so much time to trying to teach that to everybody. um, It can only help the nonprofit world. I think that there are um, people in business people I know, friends of mine who run businesses that I think are super fascinating um, because because I came from, because I, I spent time in sort of business management. There were people that, that were clients of mine who had created their own companies um, and then I was helping them manage them. And I think that I learned so many skills from, the business side of things that now I look at nonprofits, and I think wow you should really look you should really try and learn more from business because there are a different set of values um, around business which is the bottom line and in arts organizations it's really easy to lose sight of that in order to serve the art and I think that it's arts organizations are better served by Having a better sense of the bottom line um, as they grow and as they change and as they you know evolve, so I mean a lot of, a lot of businesses, a lot of like creator businesses, but then I, I am also like just unbelievably inspired by the artists around me, by the people who have the ideas that I don't have. Mm. like that's incredible to me
0: the last, the last question along those lines would be. And I know part of it is that the work that you've done with Jeff is so, you know, these are big pieces, these are important pieces, these are pieces where he's now really getting the acknowledgement internationally that I think he so, so deserves. You know, what's that process been like working with him and and what is it about, I mean, because I know him to be such an innovative guy, I was so blown away by the object lesson, um, and I'm not easily blown away by, like, theatrical work like that, and was humbled, really, and and I'm just like, what is it about him as an innovator that that you see or could describe, because you're on the inside of that process?
1: I mean, his, his great gift in creating work is that he doesn't ever see the conventions of a theater. It's so rarely, in the creation of the object lesson, it just, like... He was actively working against it. He was actively trying to create a piece that would never be in a theater. He wanted the piece to go and live in a museum and you know, to have the occasional, it was an installation that had an occasional um, performance element. And then it just happened that it got booked by all these theaters. I think that that is his starting place. I also think that he is somebody who, um, when he creates, he really thinks about a theme that interests him and trying to then mine the theme for it down to like its elemental core with home it was um, like what is this word what is how do, how does this word relate to people's lives how is this word different than the word house and through through his work and through a really really long developmental process of bringing a ton of really interesting people into the room it's like just diving into it in a a million different ways, right? In like a dramaturgical way, in an improvisation way, in a design way, and working with this assembled group of people to find the moments of beauty within the mundane or within the ordinary. Um, And I think that he does that, he did that with object lesson, he did it in a very different way with home. And so for me, I mean, he and I work unbelievably closely together Um, It's almost like, you know, we've been in a constant conversation for, you know, four years now um, where we're checking in on things. And I think my job is as his producer is to um, create the environment that allows him to to follow that process while also being the voice of sanity and reason, you know, to say, again, looking at the big picture, like, okay, so in home, you know, He wanted a massive cast because he wanted basically the show to represent um, the life cycle of a house and that everybody who had ever lived in your house before you and everybody who would live in your house after you, what, what would it look like if everybody was there on top of one another? And that requires a lot of people, a lot of bodies. And... And so we, you know, talked about, okay, so could you, like, hire people locally? Well, you know, like, what would you that do for the touring budget? You know, do you really want this show to tour? What kind of places will it tour to? And so, you know, it's it's my job to then, like, be that sounding board to him of, of saying, okay, well, you know, this is what your artistic goal is. Let's go through all the different ways we can do that and come up with a way that isn't going to mean that the show is only performed once, Right. Um, same with, we have a wonderful kid in the show, um, a 12-year-old boy, um, and we were lucky enough to have a, a consistent kid, amazing kid with us through the development of the piece, um, but we also knew that we couldn't be constantly pulling him out of school and touring, and so, you know, we the, the, I sort of said to Jeff, well, we I don't think we can tour with a kid, so then he went away and thought about, well, what is the way that we could simplify that role um, in such a way that we could teach a kid how to do it within, you know, four days um, so that it enables us to like hire a local kid. Um, And so for the way we work is like, he comes up with the A plus B equals Q. And then I'm like that, okay, let's, you know, let's talk about this in the, you know, here are all the different options. Or, you know, if I don't have the answer, like, you know what, there's this great other person we should bring into this conversation who's going to give us a perspective that we didn't have before and might actually be able to come up with the answer to make it work. So I think that he and I are constantly in this sort of like endless conversation about the idea versus the reality and and hopefully together we can then, you know, elevate something that both is incredibly beautiful artistically, represents his vision, but also has the chance to be out in the world and tour.
0: If you could... um... Talk to the sixteen-year-old self, <laughs> the sixteen-year-old, you know, uh, emerging musician Jack Berry, or the twenty-three-year-old in a collective in Paris. What advice, or thoughts, or, or, or encouragement would you offer them? Um,
1: uh, it's so it's so interesting because I, I, I sometimes feel like I came to producing really late, that I found my way here really late. Um, And so I'm I'm constantly feeling like I'm having to catch up to my own ambition. Um, and, And so I sort of think back and like, wow, like if I had known when I was 16 or when I was 23 that I wanted to be a producer, like would I have done all of this differently? And would I have started producing immediately and would my life look different than it does now? Um, or would I feel like I'm that much further on in my career? Um, but then I think about how I, so much of my twenties was spent dedicated to experience instead of career. And I've had unbelievably incredible experiences in my life. And, um, and I think that all of that, um, all of that time that I spent, hanging out in a squat in Paris actually like probably informs my career now more than if I had started producing back then. Um, and it had some, you know, very direct path. So I think that I probably, I don't know what advice I would give myself. I think I would, um, I would probably tell myself to, um, have spent more money on travel or like, I don't know, go more places, have more experiences, um, like seize everything you possibly can. And don't be so worried about like what comes next because I think the path is, I mean, I tell younger people that I talk to who are interested in getting into producing, you know, like, and they ask me, you know, well, what's the way to do it? And I'm, my advice is to like, say yes to everything. Like, say yes, to, you know, take on a volunteer thing to go and do development, because you know what, later on, if you're interested in producing, you're gonna to have to know how to fundraise, you know, or like, take on the weird project that's probably not gonna go anywhere, but you get to be in the weeds on, you know, production and marketing, and, you know, it's like, say yes to all of the things, because I think producing is, in fact, I think the, the best producers are the people who have pulled their skill set from every possible avenue and are pulling it all together and that just makes you such a more informed and empathetic producer. Awesome, that's so great.
0: (laughs) Thanks dude. You're welcome. Follow Counts Projects on Facebook and Instagram or check out Producing Innovation on Patreon where you can subscribe to join our community for production updates, behind the scenes access, creative meeting highlights, regular posts from me and the team, special offers, meetups, and more.
1: Please remember to rate, share, comment, and subscribe to Producing Innovation wherever you listen to your podcasts.